Okay, so this evening I'd like to continue with our theme of the Ten Parami that we've been working with all year. And I think most of you are familiar now with what these ten very skillful qualities of heart and mind are and how they can be developed in daily life. In fact, they need the challenges of daily life to polish them so that we can live our lives with more contentment, more ease, more clarity. And because we've been working with them basically all year, I'm not going to go through the whole list again, what I thought to do was just highlight a couple that, in my recent experience of being in personal retreat, felt very alive. And those two are patience and resolve, sometimes also translated as determination, perseverance, persistence. So just for context, back at the end of August, uh, many of you here were in the two-week retreat with Willa and Elizabeth at Temuata. So the three teachers, me, Willa and Elizabeth, and many of you who were there for our first longer retreat. And maybe some of you on that retreat had a similar experience to Willa, Elizabeth and I. We got to Temuata on the opening day and we're like, wow, that was hard work trying to extricate from, oh, I'm doing this because it's like all the tentacles of daily life. We couldn't believe how much effort it took to get everything organized to spend two weeks on retreat. So many details to take care of, so many responsibilities to let go of, all the complex situations we have to organize around And then just a week after that retreat ended, I went into my own personal retreat for a month, which I just finished on Saturday. And so again, similar process, a lot of work. I was struck by how complex it is to try and live a simple life for a month. (laughs) So right there, the parami of patience and resolve, determination are needed to stick with it, to make the effort to follow through. And then when I did eventually get to the retreat center, or in this case, Annie and Jackie's uh, beautiful rammed earth cottage up in Maharangi West, they let me use it for a month, so they're not here, but big bow of thanks to them. I finally got to that small secluded valley, and it was just idyllic is the word that's coming to mind to be able to settle in and live close to the rhythms of nature. So being woken not by an alarm clock, but by tui and warblers and wood pigeons. And at night, the ruru calling all through the night. And other than the bird song, it was pretty quiet. And that quiet just showed how noisy our normal everyday life is. I'm not talking about just audible noise but inner noise, the mind's, at least in my case, seemingly relentless processing in response to all the stimulation that it's getting. So I started to realize just how divergent retreat life and everyday life have become. Even 10 years ago, it didn't feel quite as difficult to go from one to the other. It didn't take quite as much effort. And that's true not only of going on retreat, but 
even taking time every day for our meditation, there are so many other competing things calling us away. That hyper-busyness. And I read a pretty sad uh, result of a survey that they did in Australia last year in the workforce. The, I think the government was actually concerned because fewer and fewer Australians are taking their annual leave. And so they did a survey to find out why. And what people said was the effort of getting away was one thing, but then coming back to just an overwhelming backlog made the whole process so stressful that they really didn't think it was worth it. And, you know, that's a really sad indictment on our society. And even if you're not currently in the workforce, if you're a caregiver or if you're retired, I know plenty of retired people who are busier than ever. Being retired is no guarantee of a quieter or slower pace of life. Now, in some ways, I'm stating the obvious, mostly probably... Most of you probably know this in your own experience. But I wanted to highlight it because just because it's normal doesn't mean that it's natural or that it's healthy. And exactly because of all of these pressures and complexities of everyday life, we need to spend time meditating regularly. If we can, going on retreat that downtime is needed more than ever just to maintain some degree of sanity. And yet those same pressures can make it seem harder than ever to make that happen. So here again is why I'm highlighting the parami of resolve, of determination, of perseverance, of persistence. So in that month retreat that I just did, the first three weeks I was joining in Gil Fransdall's online retreat for experienced people. So I was listening to guided meditations. I was joining the online Dharma talks. But in the last week after that ended, I could totally be unplugged, put away all the devices. I had no watch. I had no clock. So I woke up when I woke up. I ate when I was hungry. I slept when I felt like it. Probably many of you have had that experience if you've been camping or hiking or maybe sailing, just following the rhythms, the natural rhythms of life. And these rhythms, these phases of deeper calm and quiet, it made me think of how in agriculture it used to be standard practice to let crop fields go fallow, to not have a crop for a while, to let the field rest for a season or two so that the soil could recover, could regenerate, could be replenished. And then after that recovery period, after the fallow period, the field will be much more fertile. And I started thinking that's kind of analogous for what we do on retreat or on a slightly smaller scale in our everyday meditation practice. It gives this being time to rest, to recover, to regenerate so that we can get more energy, more calm, more clarity, more kindness for ourselves, for others. The problem, though, is that just like in agriculture, in society generally these days, we've lost our patience for fallow periods. We've lost our patience for quiet time. It's not productive, just sitting there doing nothing. We have this relentless obsession with productivity, and so quiet time can seem like wasted time. 
And perhaps this is even more true for going on retreat. Sometimes, you know, we take a month, we come back, well, what have you got to show for it? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Nothing tangible or visible or... We don't come back with any products. There's nothing measurable or quantifiable or anything that has a dollar value that we can say, well, that was worth it. But I'm pretty sure all of you here have some appreciation of the benefits of meditation practice or you wouldn't be here. But I just wanted to highlight that because those mainstream values are so pervasive and they can just insidiously creep in and undermine our motivation to regularly meditate. And it can take a serious amount of resolve, of determination, perseverance, persistence to keep tuning in and staying true to our deeper aspirations. Especially when there are those inner voices that say, ah, too busy today, too much on, I don't have time. It's more important to get on with X or Y or Z. And unfortunately, it's exactly in those phases that we most need to meditate. We need the downtime, the quiet time, the fallow time. It's in those phases of busyness where it often feels the most difficult. And sadly, often if we do sit down in those phases of busyness, it can seem like the mind just goes even further into overdrive. And it can be quite tormenting to sit with agitation and the restlessness and the anxiety and the stress. And those of you who've been on retreat, you probably recognize that syndrome also in the first few days of a silent retreat. Or it's like a massive detox. We're sitting alone with ourselves, away from all our usual distractions And all of that suppressed agitation and restlessness and stress and anxiety can seem worse than ever. So again, patience, resolve, determination to stay steady with those frantic movements of the mind and also the difficult emotions that often start to reveal themselves. I sometimes wonder if there's any correlation between our societies going into overdrive busyness as a strategy for avoiding dealing with what's underneath there. I know in my own life and seen other people around, it often makes me think of that Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, where he'd, or Roadrunner, they'd always run off a cliff and they'd be suspended in the air going like this, frantically still running and then crash. Sometimes it feels like that's what we're doing. Yes. And so if we think meditation is, quote, supposed to be about getting a calm, concentrated mind, then we're sitting there just writhing with restlessness and stress and anxiety. We can fall into doubt, think meditation doesn't work or I can't do it. So I just really want to encourage you, five minutes of sitting quietly, 10 minutes, 15, 20, 30, every time we do that and just sit with what is, meeting it as best we can with kindness and spaciousness, those two parami of patience and resolve are powerfully strengthened. Don't underestimate that. And then if we do have the opportunity at some point to go on retreat, 
that longer period of lying fallow, so to speak, patience really comes to the fore as we sit hour after hour, day after day, week after week, with whatever arises, not pushing, not commanding, not demanding, not expecting, just listening. And that process of non-doing is profoundly healing. How is it? I don't know, but it is. It's a kind of a mystery. I don't know how it works. But there's something about the slowing down, the stillness, the silence, the solitude that creates a sense of safety for the nervous system. And then often some of our deeper hurts and wounds can start to reveal themselves so that they can be taken care of. And sometimes people say, well, I'm fine. I don't have anything like that. But all of us, since the day we were born, we have experienced all kinds of painful situations. Some of them actually traumatic if we weren't able to fully process them at the time that they happened. And I'm in awe in myself and in many of the people I work with, the psyche's power to cover over and to deny those wounds, to hide them from others, to hide them even from ourselves, that can be incredibly strong. So I mention this because here again, patience is needed. We can't push that process. But in my own experience, even on this recent retreat, there were times when something was revealed that with hindsight, it seemed jaw-droppingly obvious. I was like, how did I not see that before? And similarly, in the two-week retreat, sitting with many of you and just people coming into the practice meetings. Wow, how did I not know that particular elephant has been in the room all of this time? And that's part of the magic and the mystery of this practice. We don't know exactly when the conditions are going to come together to allow some kind of deeper clarity, some release, some healing, some freedom. What we do know is that mindfulness is fundamental to that whole process. So as I was offering in the guided meditation, mindfulness, as we know, is a particular form of paying attention. It's about attending. It's about tending with tenderness. And that caring attention is really the prerequisite for transformation. And it's not easy because it invites us to turn towards our deepest pain. So as you know, this is the terrain of the Buddha's first noble truth, just the acknowledgement there is suffering, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, dukkha, as it's called. And doing that, turning towards that, is again deeply countercultural even on an individual level, biologically, to some extent, we are programmed to avoid pain. And then culturally, societally, there's a collective avoidance, denial of it. And sometimes this shows up in the interpreting suffering as some kind of failure. There's a tendency to take our suffering personally and to feel that we've done something wrong and that it, for it to become a source of shame. 
And a few years ago, I had a, a really powerful experience of witnessing this, how we tend to close down around our dukkha, to hide it from others, to hide it from ourselves. And that may work as a temporary strategy, but it doesn't allow for healing. So a few years ago, um, I did a MBSR training retreat. So MBSR is mindfulness-based stress reduction, and it's a secular form of mindfulness that John Kabat-Zinn developed in the U.S. to for people in the health uh, who were having health challenges to help them find more ease. So in this retreat, I really saw the power of sangha, of community, to help with that healing. So at the start of the retreat, there were about 100 people, and they all came in. And just physically, I was observing, they were kind of tense, frowning, tight. You could just feel the unease in the room. People were sort of closed down, disconnected, withdrawn, But part of that process involves hearing each other's stories. And so over the next few days, we heard, oh, this person's a recovering alcoholic. Somebody else's husband recently left them. Another person is caring for their um, parent with advanced dementia. Somebody else is recovering from depression. Another person recently diagnosed with cancer, and so on. And as these stories started to come out, and we started to see and hear and feel the universality of it, the group as a whole started to feel lighter. And even the bodily expressions of the people in the room started to change. They became softer and relaxed, more relaxed and open and straighter and stronger. And I had this image of like fern fronds unfurling. You know, in the beginning it was that tight holding on to my dukkha and I mustn't let anybody see it. And then little by little that started to release and the people blossomed is the right word, but they expanded and were healing. And this group too is a place where people can be hopefully honest about all of us have challenges. I know at the moment many of you are going through some pretty serious health challenges people who are here, people who are not here. And then there are more maybe private kinds of dukkha, psychological pain and hurt and disappointment and rejection and all of that stuff. They still cause distress to the extent that they haven't been attended to, haven't been tended to. And this is why we need these fallow phases either in regular meditation or retreat if possible, where we can do that gentle tending. Now, just to say, sometimes I told a few people recently, I was going on retreat for a month, and they were very polite. (laughs) They didn't say it, but sometimes I have heard people say, well, that's pretty (laughs) self-indulgent, isn't it? Self-indulgent, spending all that time taking a holiday, sitting around, doing nothing, avoiding the responsibilities of the so-called real world. Now, I know most of you here know how erroneous that perception is, because first of all, being on retreat is generally anything but a holiday. (laughs) It's surprisingly difficult to sit with ourselves hour after hour with no distractions whatsoever. 
And circling back to those deeper levels of distress, for most people, those we start to touch. Again, I'm doing this because it can feel like those deeper psychological, emotional wounds that happen very early on, they create a kind of a psychic defense structure that's often very unconscious. And it can be, feel to be so embedded in our way of being that it's, it's who I am. And in the fallow periods, as we start to, those structures start to be revealed, to be healed and to, to some extent, dissolve. Because they've been identified with for so long, at first it can be disorienting, destabilizing, sometimes even feel like a kind of death. A certain aspect of who we thought we were is being released, is dying. And so here again, we need the twin parami of patience and of resolve. And together, those give us the strength to allow that dissolution and to trust that that dissolution eventually makes space, opens the heart and mind for many other beautiful qualities to flourish. So this is another way that doing this work is anything but self-indulgent. There's a common phrase in contemporary psychology that, quote, hurt people, hurt people. In other ways, people who've been hurt tend to perpetuate that hurt inflicted on others. I think, you know, there's some degree of truth to that. But I also appreciate the addendum to it, healed people, heal people. So to the extent that we've been able to heal our own dukkha, stress, distress, suffering, to that same extent we are much less likely to harm others and much more likely to be able to help them wherever possible. So based on that understanding, I could argue that actually not taking fallow time in whatever way we can, that is actually selfish, (laughs) because we're not cleaning up our act, so to speak, and not taking responsibility for the potential harm we cause when we're stuck in our unconscious, wounded patterns. So I'm trying to emphasize that what I'm calling fallow time is not unproductive. It's actually necessary for these deeper levels of healing and of freedom to be accessed. And for all of us here, this process is already happening. It's happening organically, incrementally, at its own pace, little by little. Or drop by drop is the water jar filled, as it says in the Dhammapada. And again, this is so counter to our quick fix, instant gratification that contemporary society tends to demand. That society-wide impatience that led to the abandoning of fallow fields in agriculture, also drives the expectation of constant productivity that infects capitalist economics and pressures almost every aspect of our lives these days. And that whole system is based on a fundamental delusion that we are, or we should be, in complete control of every aspect of our lives. Counter to that, this practice actually asks us to give up the delusion of control. Give up our expectations, our demands, our agendas, our will-driven goals, 
and instead live in attunement with these natural rhythms of fallowing and fertility. And the Dharma ripens in us according to the extent that we set up the conditions for it to flourish and then get out of the way and let the Dharma do its work. So there are a couple of images from the suttas that I'd like to close with in relation to that. Some of you may know them that really emphasize this need for patience. The first is the image of a carpenter's adze or axe. How the handle of that adze, it naturally gets worn away as the carpenter uses it every day. But if the carpenter was to look at the handle at the end of the day and say, okay, how much has it worn down today? You couldn't say. But over the months or the years, the imprint of the hand comes into that. There's a clear effect. So I'll read you the actual words. Just as when a carpenter or carpenter's apprentice sees the marks of his fingers or thumb on the handle of his ads, but does not know, today my ads handle wore down this much, or yesterday it wore down that much, or the day before yesterday it wore down this much. Still, he knows it is worn through. He knows it is worn through when it is worn through. In the same way, when a practitioner dwells devoting themselves to development, they don't know, today my afflictive states wore down this much, yesterday they wore down that much, the day before they wore down this much. Still, they know they are worn through when they are worn through. And it goes on with a second image that I also find quite evocative. And this one uses the analogy of a ship's rigging and how the rope naturally wears away due to the action of the weather. It says, Just as when an ocean-going ship, rigged with masts and stays, after six months on the water, is left on shore for the winter, its stays or ropes are weathered by the heat and wind, moistened by the clouds of the rainy season, They easily wither and rot away. In the same way, a practitioner dwells devoting themselves to development and their afflictive states easily wither and rot away. So I like that image, but I'm a little unsure about that last statement saying our afflictive states easily wither and rot away. (laughs) I think we need to come back to the patience reminder And yet, for me, at least, there's something comforting. You can imagine like a four- or five-strand ply of rope and just the wind, the rain, the heat. Little by little, the ropes fray, the fibers pull apart. A strand just gently breaks. And then there's a bit of unraveling, and then another. And it's a very natural, organic process as our tension and tightness and stress, distress releases And at some point, the rope just releases. So those are just some reflections on where this is all heading. And I'll bring it to a close there so we can pause for a cup of tea and see what emerges afterwards. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.